0: Hello and welcome back to Social Matters Podcast. We are free social workers talking about social matters. My name is Yuji.
1: Hi, I'm Nadia. Hi, I'm Fran.
0: Hi guys. We should let listeners know that we're not alone in the podcast recording room. We have a very special guest with us. Oh, I was going to say her name at the end, but in my notes, it's at the beginning, so it's not a big surprise. <laughs> we have Lydia Guthrie with us. So, Lydia is a family and systemic psychotherapist, trainer, group facilitator, and supervisor working in criminal justice, mental health, and social work settings. She has spent 10 years working for the probation service in a range of specialisms, including work with long term prisoners and group work with men who have committed sexual abuse and domestic abuse. She has worked as a supervisor, a team manager, and has also developed and delivered programs for victims and survivors of abuse. And that was a shortened version of Lydia's really long and extensive profile experience. So welcome to the podcast, Lydia.
2: Good morning, everyone. It's such a joy to be here. I'm such a fan of your podcast. So it's a real thrill to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Oh no, thank you so much for joining. And we didn't even pay her to say that she's a fan. She she (laughs) is literally a genuine fan. Not that we pay people, but yeah, (laughs) Lida is a fan. So we're excited to have you on we always love the support and love that you give us online. And it's great to meet you virtually.
3: (laughs) And having guests helped give us credentials because none of us have a bio like that. So (laughs) thank you you booked our respect and ratings there, so thank
1: you. Definitely. Thank you so much, Lydia, for joining us. So as a fan of the podcast, I think you will know that we quite enjoy a check-in. And one of the check-ins that we like to do with some of our guests is the this or that check-in. Are you familiar? Yeah. 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 So we've got one for you. So just to prepare yourself, just take a nice deep breath in. You've got to calm and centre yourself. Yes. I feel so cared for. This is (laughs) And the invitation is just to answer without giving it too much thought. uh, Okay. And landing on your answer. So are you ready? I am. Bring it on. Okay. So first one. Yoga or Zumba? Yoga. Red wine or gin? Red wine. (laughs) which one was it sorry red wine uh, the red
2: the wine. transfer is both but not in the same glass <laughs> i could only have one then it would be red
1: wine cool the countryside or beach countryside read a book or watch a film book i think night in or night out oh night out zoom or teams oh definitely zoom text message or phone call text message cats or dogs dogs driver or passenger driver Fran or Eugene
0: (laughs) (laughs) that is so cheeky
1: answer oh, it's, it's okay it's okay
0: well you don't have to answer but remember i'm the editor so you know. yeah
2: yeah exactly well now that i now that i know a little bit about you both i think it would be eugene for reaching tall stuff <laughs> off shelves um and fran to take me on a, a tour of her beautiful home city of york oh
0: love it good good night balance answer <laughs>
3: I was felt a bit nervous then for you I knew it was coming and I thought oh no but um well yeah I, I loved your pause for the red wine or gin and I thought of that one Lydia because that was one that I would be yeah. like oh but I think I probably would land on red wine too okay That's- so lovely to meet you because we've not met before but heard lots about you and for, for listeners we've bonded over both being northern which is nice because I'm surrounded by two East Londoners which I love them dearly but it's nice to like hear a northern voice. <laughs> so today I guess before we begin the main conversation today we're going to be talking about mostly working with sexual abuse and your kind of experience in that field but I guess before we begin if you could just tell us a bit about your experience in that area.
2: Sure, yeah. Um, and I think it is really important to say at the beginning what the content of the, of the podcast is going to be so that people can have a think about if this is a podcast that they want to listen to, if they're in the right space or physical place at that point in time to listen to it and just take a very particular kind of breath for themselves, um, because it is it is a theme that that may affect people in different ways, according to their experiences. Um, so I'm really glad you said that up front. Um my experience of, of working in the field of sexual abuse and sexual offending started when I was a probation officer um I I joined the probation service uh, had a huge caseload um uh, given to me of about 100 Uh, people, mostly males, who were mostly in prison. Um, And as I was reading through this huge filing cabinet, um, I suddenly realised that about a third of the people that I was now supervising uh, were in prison because they'd committed sexual offences. And it wasn't something I'd, I'd particularly signed up for. You know, I I didn't opt in, as it were. I just got this caseload. And as I was reading through the files, I thought, crikey, nothing in my training so far has prepared me for this. I, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. Uh, So luckily we had in the probation area where I was, we had a specialist unit, a specialist team who worked with people who committed sexual offences. So I very naively rang them up and went, I've got all these cases and I don't know what I'm doing. Please help. Um, (laughs) And their team manager, who was uh, a wonderful woman called Mary Foe, who had a big impact on my life and career. um, She came over and saw me in my office and spent two hours with me going through some basic underlying underpinning ideas, of why people might commit sexual offences and mm. how I how I could work with them um so that that really helped and I was super grateful um and then e- even so at the first time I knowingly met someone who'd committed a sexual offence I remember walking down the stairs in my office to the interview rooms and I remember noticing that my knees were going mm-hmm. um, I had this very embodied physical sim- sign Um, of what was happening in my emotional self, um, Mm -hmm. of feeling this is really significant. Um, This feels different from work I've done before. Um, And I'm noticing that I feel a bit, you know, a bit wobbled, a bit activated about it. Um, and, And however, when I when I met the person, I just met a man. I met a man who'd done a particular thing. Um, And the offence, the offence was very serious. It had had a huge impact on lots of people's lives. Um, But I found that even though, despite this kind of extra heightened awareness of the significance of this conversation, I felt that I could do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I was quite surprised in a way that sitting Mm -hmm. with him with the knowledge that I had, that it. It just felt I could tune into him. I could sit there and engage and and work with him in a way that I'd learned to work with other people who'd committed different kinds of offences. So that piqued my curiosity. I kind of thought, oh, maybe this is something I could do. Um, and then over the next couple of years, I moved into the specialist team, still run by my wonderful mentor, Mary Foe. Um, and in that team, I was very lucky to get lots of development opportunities. Um, we specialised in working with people who'd committed sexual offences. We did assessments, ran a treatment programme. We also did work with victims of sexual offences. Um, and fascinatingly, we particu- it was really interesting to me, we, we ran a partners programme. So a, a programme for female partners of male uh, sex offenders uh, who still were involved in the care of children who'd been affected by sexual abuse. Um, and partners included sisters, grandparents, uh, cousins, you know, you know, so it was it was very broad. Um, and that for me was a real crucial learning period. Mm. Um, so so I, I worked in the probation service for, I don't know, eight years or so with that specialism supervising the uh, group work programmes and um, doing you know and and engaging in them myself Um, and then uh, and then in the next bit of my career when I left the probation service um, I for four years I was co-lead national trainer for the probation service for work with people who'd committed sexual offences and then since then I've I've I'm still around the work so I, I don't work Specifically, and with people who've committed sexual offences these days, um, I still do. It, I still supervise teams who do. So I do kind of clinical reflective supervision um, mm. in teams where they work with people um, who've committed acts of, of sexual abuse, both for children, young people, and adults. Um, and I'm a trustee of a charity called Circles of Support and Accountability in the South East, uh, who are active in in the field of campaigning. There our strapline is No More Victims, um, and it's a really wonderful charity that maybe I can say a bit more about at some other point because I realise that's a very long answer, so I should <laughs> stop <start now>. there. <laughs> no, that was all no, no, on no. one breath, folks, one breath. <laughs>
0: No, that was brilliantly dear. One of the things that we experience and I know I just experienced it just now when thinking about podcast guests is we're recording, but then as you're speaking, I'm just learning so much. I was just pausing thinking this is so important to know. And yes, we, we kind of know about sexual abuse in the context of our workers, social workers, but hearing a lot about your specialism and your experience is just so important. So thank you for sharing that answer. So thinking about assumptions, sometimes we make assumptions that everyone knows what is meant by sexual abuse, but from your professional perspective, how would you define sexual abuse in the context of social work?
2: Yeah, what a good question. Um, when, I, when I think about this, uh, I, I think about um, about what frame of reference we're using. So very often when we talk about sexual abuse and sexual offending, it's in a legal context so we you know we're we're working with a family where someone's committed an act, and we've got the legal term for that act. Um, and And that that legal terminology can be very dominant. Um, and I, I think I guess something I'm quite curious about is often what's what's had the most impact on the people affected by those acts. And often it's not what's reflected in the legal terminology. Um, So it's, you know, and and also sometimes the legal terminology implies some kind of framework of seriousness. You know, each each particular crime label, so to speak, comes with a particular sentencing category. So Mm -hmm. inherent in that language is a framework of more serious or less serious, Mm -hmm. um, which can sometimes be really uncomfortable um, because the how how the act is perceived. Can be very different according to different stakeholders. Um, you know, uh, which, which is which, which can be which adds a real complexity to the work. So I guess for me, the definition that counts the most or st- steers me the most is centered on the impact of the uh, sexual abuse on the victims. Mm -hmm. on the people who experienced it. And I mean victims in the broadest sense. So there there might be a person who was directly, physically the victim, but also the people around them, the people Mm -hmm. in their family, the people in their networks. Um, uh, You know, you can you can do a ripple effect uh, Mm -hmm. from a a sexual offence often, that that often has many, many, many ripples that are really hard to predict. It's really hard to predict the impact. Um, and how far it will spread. So, I, so I guess to me that the definitions um, that matter the most are about the impact on the people who who had those experiences. And and there's some there's something really key in that about consent that that no definition in words can fully capture the range of. Behaviors that might constitute a sexual offence. Um, so for me, the, the fundamental thing that they all share in common is a real transgression of a person's autonomy and, and their rights over their body, over their minds, over their being, um, and something being done that to which they haven't consented. Um, and 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 when when we think about that term consent, I mean this is very this is really core in social work. We talk about this when we think about um domestic abuse as well um, and in adult services when we think about mental health capacity as well um, so it, it consent it's something about a genuine consent <laughs> yes is meaningless if if no isn't a genuine possibility mm-hmm. you know, so so thinking about power um privilege status identity um, and how how those differences can affect someone's capacity to say yes or no to an act um, so, yeah, so that again, that's another quite long answer to your question about the, the different frameworks, different terminologies. But actually what I believe at my heart is at the core, which is about
3: um, consent and power. Thanks so much. It's so important and made me think about so many aspects of language and language constructing meaning just more generally in social work when you were speaking. And, you know, almost in my mind when we were thinking of that question, it was kind of like, oh, to help listeners understand the definition and actually the subjectivity of a lot of those things and actually a much more I guess cultural humility or approach to seeking to understand that person's experience in all forms of social work so it just made me think the importance of that when we're thinking about harm and abuse and more broadly as well of just really understanding that person's experience and how much sometimes as professionals were led by legal frameworks and definitions or our own subjective understanding rather than the person so yeah it just made me reflect there so thank you.
2: I couldn't agree more there. I, I work now as a family therapist in an NHS child and adolescent mental health service so in CAMS. and now in in my work as a family therapist um, I very often work with people who've experienced sexual abuse um, and once again I'm, I'm noticing that the things that people carry with them, the things that really affect them deeply in their heart and their being about the sexual abuse is often not reflected in the legal terminology that it's that it's a, that it's given uh, by by the the professional system. Um, so yeah, so so for me, it's really hang on, important to hang on to both. They both have their place, but we have to remember that the legal terminology isn't isn't complete. <laughs> if that makes
1: mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for the wisdom that you shared so far, Lydia. It's just really helpful to hear you speak. And I was just thinking about what you were saying of not just the impact of abuse kind of led me to think about professionals who work with people who have been sexually abused. And you were so caring about that at the beginning, just to give people the heads up to think about whether this is something that you want to listen to at this time where you are. And yes, working with sexual abuse can be very emotionally draining and potentially triggering for people. What advice would you offer people on how to best support themselves when working with sexual abuse and maybe what support can they get from their employers or other people around them?
2: Yeah, it's a great question and and so important. Um, There is is some really fabulous research done in this field. that jo Clark is a forensic psychologist and academic um, who has really dedicated a huge part of her professional life to studying the uh, resilience and um, what helps I know resilience is a contested word just as I said it I thought oh yeah. no people but yeah thinking about how how people cope when they're working in uh, in area in fields at which are potentially um uh, trauma-inducing or can potentially have negative psychological outcomes for the for the professionals um and her her framework has some really great um practical pointers um and and the for me when i read her work i i'm really mindful of how important it is that as as workers in these fields that we have our own personal and professional support networks um that you have people in work you can go to and 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 spend time with whether you talk directly about issues of impact or not just just having that connection just being with people you feel connected to and safe with Mm. Um, and also having having similar out of work Um, so having strong personal networks of family friends um community, community networks, you know, all the things that make families strong, <laughs> mm-hmm. strong ties to community, strong sense of identity and belonging. All of those things are really essential if you're going to be working in any kind of field where there's a potential for negative psychological outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me as well, when I when I think back on on my career, times that I was being impacted, by the work, I think I used to try to busy myself and, and lose myself in in, in just busyness um, as a way of uh, filling up my brain and my time <laughs> with things that uh, meant that I wasn't required to, to kind of be honest with myself um, about impact issues. Um, and so I think for people just stopping, um, just St- you know notice try to try to regularly get into a position where you're reflecting and thinking uh what to what degree of busy am i you know <laughs> how how am i doing um and being open with yourself um because there will be impact you know it's impossible to uh, Karen Dr Karen Treisman who does a lot of work in trauma she she has this this great phrase that working in these kinds of fields um and thinking that you can somehow not be impacted is like going for a walk in the rain and thinking you're not going to get wet Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and and so and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that we have to normalize it Mm -hmm. Um, it's the question is what's the nature and degree of the impact Um, and what strategies do you have what resources do you have people all kinds of resources within yourself within your community within your networks what kind of resources do you have that can sustain you
1: you spoke earlier about resilience being a contested word well I just wondered whether you could just speak a bit more to that because you kind of spoke to it a bit later on in your answer but yeah just maybe naming it a bit more why is it such a contested word would you say
2: yeah I, I think it's a great question and I think it's another podcast in itself <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Um, I, and and I I it's something I've done quite a lot of work on I, I wrote a book chapter um on uh, resilience in uh, for professionals who work in the field of sexual abuse um, and I and I do uh, I offer training in, in local authorities on resilience and for me it's a real ethical conundrum so sometimes I'm asked to deliver resilience training with a capital R and a capital T by a local authority. And when I talk to them about their wider frameworks and strategies for supporting staff welfare, I get the sense that what they want is a sheep dip model of resilience. So we're going to take all of our staff members one by one, dip them in a half day workshop on resilience, and then send them back out into a work environment, which is intolerable. You know, which which makes demands on them, which is is beyond any human's capacity to cope. But they'll be okay because we've dipped them in the sheep dip of resilience training. Um, And it can come from quite an individualistic approach that um, the the term itself can be used as as a way of blaming individuals. You know, the problem is that you're not resilient enough because look at that person over there. They've got a caseload the same size as yours and they look fine. So what you need to do is be more resilient. Um, That's how I think it's really unhelpfully positioned as a term. But if I think where it can be useful um, is if in a sound ethical way, what you're doing is talking to groups of staff about how do you cope. You know and how good is your organization at supporting you how good is your organization at predicting crunch points predicting times when things might get tricky how good is your organization at monitoring what strategies are in place not just paying for counseling on a phone line but monitoring is it being used how is it viewed by staff is there a stigma attached to using it how how do we make it more accessible um and and you know so so i i think I think it can be very useful if it's positioned in, in, in that kind of ethical way. So, certainly in working in CAMS, I have a massive caseload. Um, and I quite often get emails from my trust saying, hey, guys, it's Wednesday yoga. And they make you <laughs> want to scream. <laughs> and
3: <laughs> yeah. you want so, the red wine and not the yoga. Yes. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, you
3: know, I, I'm like, how is this going to help
2: me? I don't have an hour to go to yoga, and I'll go to yoga for an hour, and then I'll go back to my caseload, and I'll have one less hour to do all the work. What I really need is a reasonable caseload. Yeah. So, so I guess I've been on lots of different sides of this of this quest, this contested term. Mm. Um,
3: it's definitely something I've found, particularly in the context of supporting student social workers and this idea of resilience and, yeah, very much more blaming. And I suppose it's more adopting a systemic view, isn't it, in terms of thinking about it relationally and rather than a linear blaming view of resilience. But, yeah, definitely good to unpick resilience a bit more. But, yeah, Absolutely. great. I don't think we've done one on resilience. A podcast, really, so
2: There you go. It's, it's, I, it's such a cool, it, I think it's really important. It's important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because ideas of helping people to um, to build up their strengths at coping um, and being and tuning into themselves and asking for support, normalising, asking for support. Um, Joe Clark has this great phrase as well of manage your energy. Mm. You you know, so think about what I I only have. And she means emotional energy as well as time, you know, and resources. Um, And and so I think there are some really useful skills that we can talk about with people. But as you you say, only from that sound ethical position rather than a you've had resilience training now. Surely you can now get on with it. (laughs)
0: Mm. Sorry, I just wanted to quickly follow up on something you you said previously about quoting Karen Treesman and saying it's impossible to think that we're not going to be affected by the work. And then just going back to your answer to the first question, which for me was quite powerful when you were describing your wobbly knees as you went in to visit that person in prison first off and I was just wondering from your perspective what did that nervousness or anxiety that you experienced in that first encounter what did that look like in future encounters was it that you never had wobbly knees again or was it located somewhere else in your body or how did you kind of hold that nervousness in, in a different way?
2: Wow that is such a great question Um, I love the quality of listening in <laughs>
0: thank
2: you it's so it's like hats off for the question it's me yeah um uh, I think I think on that occasion the first time I knowingly interviewed someone who'd committed sexual offences I think the wobbly knees represented fear um you know and nerve and self-doubt am I going to be able to do this Am I going to be able to sit in a small room opposite at a table, the opposite side of which is a man who I know has committed these acts? Um, Am I going to be able to tolerate that in this conversation with this man? Am I going to be able to ask the questions I need to ask, to say the things I need to say, um, to hear the things I need to hear? Um, so I, I, I think it was it was very much rooted in a knowledge that this was new to me and that I and, and a sense of I don't know what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. And what if I get it wrong? Because a, a sense of responsibility, a heavy weight of duty of of, of not getting it wrong, I think. Um, and I think over time. It it never that sense never went away, but maybe it changed Um maybe it changed as I became more experienced, as I became more able to, to stand firm myself, um, as I became more able to reflect on my own values, my own beliefs, my own life experiences, um, and to pull them together into one strong whole, where I could meet people with all those aspects of myself. Um and my identity as a female, um, working mainly with men in in that setting, um, and so yeah, so so there was something for me about developing a, a strength, um, knowing that I could use my head, my heart, my hands, my nose, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, all those all those social work skills, knowing that I could use them all together. Um, The boldness of of raising difficult themes, um, boldness of asking questions that I knew would be provocative, Um, an ability to tolerate um, people if I felt that they were trying to, if I felt that their intention was to behave in a way that would wobble me or upset me or shock me. Um, So so building strength in all of those areas, I think. Um, Experience. Over time, supervision, really good supervision, helped. Um, great teammates <laughs> um, that who, who who I could
1: connect
2: with and and, and have those conversations with. Um, they, they all really helped. Um, so it never went away. And and I certainly, right up to the end of my time in probation, I would still have conversations with people about things that they'd done, how they felt about them, how what it meant for their lives. About you know very shocking things that they'd done um, where I'd I'd read the details of uh, the police interviews and the victim statements they never they never stopped hurting you know I I never stopped feeling um, pain I think uh, one step removed you know Mm. uh, I never stopped feeling compassion and pain for the suffering of the victim all victims and people connected with them Um, I think if I had I shouldn't I should have stopped doing the work um, I, I would very often feel that I, if I wasn't sure where to go next in a in an interview, if I felt out of my depth or, or wasn't sure what to do next, I would quite often take a breath and think, OK, if there was a window in this room and the victim or their families were looking in, what would they be wanting me to do right now? Um, and, and that would kind of ethically centre me, if, if that makes sense, um, be a kind of compass point, I guess. Mm. Um, which isn't to say that you're an advocate for the victim when you're doing that kind of a work. Um, That's not that's I think in my heart, I always felt that I was. But but sometimes that's not that's not the most useful thing to draw. on if you're trying to help someone change, Mm -hmm. no one changes because you sit there and go, look at what you did. Mm -hmm. Um, So so you would have different modes in which I would work with people. But Mm -hmm. but but that idea of centering the victim's experience in my heart and in my being was always a compass point I think um so yeah so yeah I never stopped feeling the knee wobbles <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but maybe maybe they changed their meaning a little bit <laughs>
3: yeah thank you so much so insightful there in, in terms of working with sexual abuse I suppose you've answered maybe some of it but I was thinking about when you were mentioning was it Mary Foe at the beginning yeah. that a person that stood out for you as a guide and mentor in many ways I suppose I guess maybe I'm thinking of her for you to impart some of your knowledge in terms of words of wisdom or advice that you'd give to people working in the field of sexual abuse and you've touched on some of it in your previous questions but I don't know if there's anything that you want to add
2: yeah it's um it is a really interesting question um I think I I think for me uh, one of I I do lots of supervision in this field as well and and I think the people who I supervise who seem the most able to tolerate the work um, without experiencing negative psychological outcomes are people who are always open to the possibility of impact Um, because because if uh, i guess i guess the the impact the impact can be in in kind of two broad ways one is it it, it can kind of actively affect aspects of your your being so you're sleeping you're eating your it can affect the content of your thoughts it can affect how you feel it can affect decisions you make you know i've uh, Certainly for myself, I had times when that happened. I had I had young children during the period of time I was working most intensively with people who committed sexual offences, um, and I would find myself in playgrounds worried about who else was in the playground. Can I let them out of my sight? Uh, the world is a dangerous place, you know. This this kind of set of beliefs. So I know I experienced that a little bit, um, and and I and so that's one set of potential impacts. The the uh, the other set is 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 more disconnecting so rather than becoming too connected it's the op- the kind of the psychological opposite of becoming disconnected or blasé mm-hmm. um and you know uh, um making jokes about impact um you know um cutting off becoming cynical or cold about the nature of the work that that kind of thing I, i've kind of worked with people where that's happened too and either of those is really unhealthy in different ways um and, and so I think my main guidance to people would be to find a safe space where you feel able to check in with yourself. Um, what am I noticing? What am I noticing in my head, my heart, my behaviour, my relationships? Um, am I am I am I becoming too connected and I'm taking it home with me or am I becoming disconnected and I'm feeling cynical about the work? Um, and, and and to, to find a safe place, whatever that looks like for individuals to, to, to really check in with themselves, do kind of a top to toe check in um, and then be a crucially then to have some resources to 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 know what to to do (laughs) so often that's in that's relationships so loved ones family friends um each person will have their own support network it might include a faith community or a or a, a, a particular spiritual community or a professional community um but and but to recognize this you know sometimes people talk to me about impact and I say well you know what's the what's the alternative to being impacted because the alternative is much worse mm-hmm. the alternative of never being impacted is much worse because <laughs> what yeah. would that say about what would that say about a person
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: it's a profoundly human quality to feel impacted by the experiences of people around us and if we lose that how can we do the work um yeah so so it's it's actually it, in some ways it's a positive it's a sign that you're you're human and you're connected um and and that's good let's hang on to that but mm-hmm. let's make a plan
1: yeah
0: yeah
2: so so i think that's that would be the guidance that i would that i would give
0: thank you lydia that's just so powerful and, and relevant and important and necessary guidance but thinking about your experience your wealth of experience what in your experience have you found Works well in supporting people making disclosures. Do you have any guidance or do's or don'ts when someone discloses?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I guess, I guess the, again, there's there's guidance that comes from lots of different frameworks. So I guess most social workers would be familiar with their 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 kind of um, their organisation's guidance um, about what you have to do following a disclosure. So so that's all there already, I imagine, for most social workers. Um, and that can sometimes take priority. Sometimes when someone starts talking to us, that when we think it's a disclosure, in our mind, we're already five steps ahead about, oh, I'm going to have to make that phone call, and I'm going to have to do this, and I'm going to have to write that down. And, and, and so so I guess I guess one one thing that I would suggest to people is that we hold that in mind, that's really important. We hold that in mind, but we also put it slightly to the side while we're in the conversation with the person, because the most important thing in that moment is to be present with the person who's sharing that experience with us. It's a great privilege for us as a listener, for for, for the speaker to have chosen to honour us by sharing that experience. And we owe it to them to show up, fully show up in that conversation. Um, I would also have some guidance about language. Sometimes we bring in professional language as a way of staying a bit safe in the conversation. And we might name things using, you know, professional or legal language. Um, And I'm not sure that helps. So I I would try and tune into the person and use the language that they're using um, and slow right down, slow right down. Um, Try to try to truly be with them in that moment. Um, um, I also it would always be my practice as well to check out who, who else knows about this. You know, who else have you shared this with? Um, because sometimes when sometimes people have have made disclosures to me or, or shared with me really intimate details of things that have happened to them in a way that's made me think that they've said it before. So there's something been something in the manner of their speech, which has made it's been really fluent. Um, and, and I've thought, OK, so you, you've told this story before. And when I've checked it out with them, they've said, oh, no, I've, I haven't. This is the first time I've spoken of this. Um and 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 the the opposite has held true as well. Sometimes I've had the sense that this is that this is the first time someone's speaking about it, and they say, "Oh no, no, this this was all written down. It was all investigated. It's it's you know it's it's all been dealt with in Commerce. Um So so I I now don't assume, um, and I'm I'm very mindful to check out with someone at an appropriate point. Um, may I ask you, who else knows about these events? Um, who else Who else is has, is aware? Um, and, and I, I guess I, I'm always, I always try to permission seek. Would it be okay if I if we talk now about what happens next? You know, um, uh, and, and I'm always very mindful of power in those conversations because for me, that one of the fundamentals of sexual abuse is that it's a gross breach of power and trust. Um, so I'm always very mindful to be transparent, to go at the person's own pace, to seek permission every step of the way. Um, and, and that includes saying to someone as early as on in the conversation as possible in a in a respectful, kind way um, that, you know, I, I just want to pause for a moment and let you know that you have a that you have choices about what you share with me. There are some things that if you share with me because of my role, I can't keep them to myself. Um, and so please take some time to think about what you might want to say. Um, and, and then very gently exploring that with people, because I mm-hmm. I think that's respectful. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that's um, it's respectful. It's honest um, that sometimes victims of sexual abuse talk about being re-traumatised and re-abused by the system where as, very painful aspects of their life somehow become public property and become taken out of their hands. So so I, I guess I, I always foreground that idea of consent, transparency, power. Um, sharing power as much as we can Um, Mm -hmm. and being explicit with people not making my my own assumptions but being explicit who else Mm -hmm. knows about this Um, so so yeah I guess that's my practice Um, other people might have different practices um, and 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 or want to add things to that Um, but I think that's the that's the core of how of how I've learned to to respond in, in those moments
1: Thank you, Lydia. You spoke so beautifully about how to hold the person who's experienced that abuse in mind and be really respectful and thoughtful in those conversations. And I was wondering, we know that you've had a lot of experience working with perpetrators of sexual Mm -hmm. abuse. What do you think is important for people to hold in mind when working with perpetrators?
2: Yeah, this is such a big question. Um, i think I think my first response is about this um this binary divide we have between victims and perpetrators um, and it's a this it's a very rocky area to speak about um because of the great harm that is caused by acts of sexual abuse um so so every, so it's quite rightly. The conversation is is very sensitized um, and, I, and, and and I'm very mindful of that. Um, most of the people I work with and have worked with who've committed acts of sexual abuse as adults when when I go back with them through their life story, um, many of them have themselves experienced abuse of different kinds, be it sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. Um, whatever it might be. And I, I, sometimes I, I've worked with, um, I remember working with a particular young adult who was 23. And when I looked at, and he'd committed acts of sexual abuse that I was working with him about. And when I looked at his life story, I, I, I was struck with this incredible sadness that had, had this person had come to, the atten- to, to my attention At an earlier age, he would have been framed by the system as a victim um, because of all the different experiences he had had in his life. Um, And yet you hit this kind of magic line in the sand of being 18 and all of a sudden the system positions you as a perpetrator. And it's as if it's binary. It's one or the other. Um, and, And by 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 raising that, I in no way mean to diminish the harm caused by the adult. You know, he was 23. He was an adult. He was legally responsible. He did things that harmed people. All that is really essential. And, and of course, it's also important to hang on to the idea that there are lots of people who suffer difficulties in their early lives and in, in, as children and young people who don't go on to harm others. You know that we, There is choice there. There is responsibility. There has to be consequences. Um, and that's, that's accurate and correct. Um, And and so in in a kind of legal framework, in a professional framework, in a moral framework, of course, we have to make that distinction. But when I'm when working with perpetrators, the skill is to hold both in mind at the same time um, and get into all the messiness and contradictions that that entails um so sitting in front of me is the 23 year old who has harmed another and the mandate for my conversation with him is a is a legal framework a moral framework about punishment and uh, a need to change behavior and assess and manage risk and and all that is right um but in my conversations with him what we know about how we help people change is I also need to bear in mind that I am also working with a person who is a sum of their life experiences, um, and 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 somehow hold those very two contradictory selves in mind at the same time, mm-hmm. because no one changes their behaviour by being shouted at or or told that they're a terrible person or shamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so shame, I think, here is key. People change their behaviour if they feel. Um, when they feel safe, where they where they where there isn't sh- where shame isn't dominant in a conversation, um, where they feel able to, to talk about their experiences, talk about um, moments of difficulty, talk about choices they've made, um, and what they want to do differently, you know, all those ideas of how we work with people towards change that we've learned through fields of you know substance misuse or uh, whatever it might be, all of those principles still apply. Um, And that's the real challenge, I think, when we work with perpetrators, because you can have, you know, I've certainly worked with people where I have hugely strong emotions about the act that they perpetrated or the acts that they have perpetrated and the harm that they have caused. But when I work with them in a room, I'm working with a whole human being. um, And that's it's essential to, to remember that, I think.
3: Thank you so much. And again, as you were speaking, just thinking about in social work and all aspects that importance of holding different things in mind at the same time and sometimes quite challenging which i suppose links back to some of your earlier reflections around the importance of having that space to reflect are we moving into a more linear position or are we able to have those multiple hats on that we we often talk about i suppose building on from that around the idea of change and i guess that is so important when we think of social work and moving towards change and also i guess the idea of hope within that do you have any stories or moments of hope from your work that you would want to share
2: oh yeah definitely I I think one one of the one of the common um like folk myths I think around sexual offending work is that people don't change um you know once you've breached that line that's it that's your identity forever that's who you're going to be for the rest of your life um and the 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 there's a very active research community in the field of, of sexual abuse and sexual offending and the the data doesn't bear that out people do change um you know people who and, and and we have to be very you know sometimes we equate we lump together all acts of sexual abuse as being in one category um, and actually, there are some really sophisticated risk assessment tools that we can use that they're, they're never fully accurate on their own, but they can they can support risk assessments and, and judgments. Um, you know that I, I firmly believe in the possibility of change with everybody I work with. Um, I kind of I kind of grant them that to begin with <laughs> and wait to be proved wrong. Um, mm-hmm. There are some people who won't change. Um, there there are people that one fundamental distinction that might be helpful to people who are listening um, it, it is about people is about a, a, people who've committed sexual offences often have different orientations to their crimes. So there are people who we call approach pathway offenders. That's a bit of jargon. Um, and those folk are people who their sexual preference is for acts of non-consensual sex. So either non-consensual sex with an adult or sexual activity with a child, which can never be consensual. So we call them approach pathway because that's what they set out to do. And when you interview them about their sets of beliefs about sexual offending, um, they, they will often say things. They will often diminish the seriousness or say it's okay. You know, I'm right. Society's wrong. Um, you know, um, and 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 they will they will often have a, an, a a set of values which is in support of sexual offending, and, and beliefs and attitudes that support it. So they're approach pathway offenders. We then have avoidant pathway offenders, who are people whose fundamental core beliefs do not support sexual offending, but through things that things that they've experienced, situations that they were in. Um, they gradually, over time, have come to a position where they've ended up sexually offending. So sometimes, if I often have the thought that if I'd met them five years before their crime and said to them, "What do you think about, you know, the uh, what's your belief about uh, having uh, having sexual activity with a child under 13?", they would go, "What? What do you mean? Are you crazy? Of course, I'd never do that. That's that that would be really wrong." um but there's some there's a situational quality to their offending um which isn't at all to excuse it or diminish it the harm to the victim is the same whichever pathway the offender is on so so making that distinction in no way diminishes the seriousness of the impact of what they've done it just helps orientate the professional system around how to work with the person Mm -hmm. so people on an approach pathway is it it the conversations aren't so much about change because this is that person's expressed set of beliefs. True paedophiles, for example, so a person with a sexual preference for activity with a child um, who has n- little or no interest in sexual activity with an adult. It's, it's very often, those conversations are not about how do we change you? They're about how does the professional system put a network of r- assessment and risk management around you? um to 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 prevent further offending so that would be the appropriate set of conversations that would best protect people um, when we're working with someone who's on an avoidant pathway so who whose sets of beliefs and values do not support sexual offending um, then there's more room for change and then there's more room for hope um, mm-hmm. and it's it's with people on that pathway where we can have conversations about how did you end up doing this Mm. um how did you as that person who 10 years ago had this set of beliefs about the world had this set of hopes and dreams and desires for yourself and your family how did you get how did you give yourself permission over time to do this thing and how do we work with you to make sure that never happens again um and it's with those folks that there's more hope for change um Now, there there will be people listening who might not who might not support that. There might be people listening who go, yeah, you know, once you've committed a sexual offence, always a sexual offender. Um, And and I respect that view. That's, you know, people will have different reasons why they have those positions. Um, But I know I know from my professional practice, um, I truly believe I've worked with people who've committed great acts of, of great sexual harm, who feel ashamed, who don't want to do them again. Um, and who want to put everything in place in their lives to lead a, a safe life that they can be rightly proud of, that where where they don't harm others. Um, and And I guess I, I do have stories of hope. I, I I think I mentioned at the start I'm a trustee of a charity circles of support southeast. Um, this is a, a a fabulous charity. It's based on um based on ideas from the Quaker community in Canada. Um, and the idea is that we we as a community are responsible for the reduction of harm caused by sexual offending. Mm-hmm. Um, as a community, we share this responsibility. Um, and how, how does an offender rehabilitate into a community that rejects them? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the heart of the work. So wonderful volunteers from all walks of life volunteer for the charity, undertake specialist training. Um, and then form, literally form a relational circle around um, someone who's committed a sexual offence. Mm-hmm. So it's usually about four people in, in a circle. The person who's committed the sexual offence is called the core member. So they're the co- at the core of the circle. And people from all walks of life commit to spending 18 months uh, um, meeting regularly with that person, with each other, to both support them in building a a life that they can be proud of, where they don't harm others, and also hold them to account. So it's that twin track of support and accountability. Um, And through, you know, it's it's a remarkable charity that I'm very proud to be a trustee of, Um, and we have many, many stories of hope um, of people who, of core members who have committed to that work, they've committed to be part of a circle. they they have to sign up to sharing details of their crime with the circle that details of their risk assessment reports details of the risk management plan Um, we work very closely with statutory agencies so with police and probation mental health services um so that the the relief so that the volunteers in the circle have a really good idea of if this person was struggling what would we be noticing um, mm-hmm. When do we need to start to challenge this person about choices that they're making? When do we need to call in other people to, to get involved here? Um, and so there, there are many, many stories of hope and change um, that centred in that charity. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing that gives me hope is we, you know, people volunteer. You know, um, we just people from the community, students, professionals, people who have had professional roles in the community with sex offenders, people who haven't, people who've just retired and have got some time on their hands. Yeah, you know, all kinds of folk volunteer to come and work with us to to do to do this important work, and uh, because they they must have hope. You know you to, to sign up to work with us it's difficult work it's time consuming it's emotionally draining you know the the wonderful volunteers who come and volunteer with us must themselves be motivated by hope or else why would they do it mm-hmm. so so yeah there there is hope for change not with everybody um at all uh, and it's hard
0: work but there is hope Thank you so much Lydia for everything that you've shared today. Like I said at the beginning yes we're recording but just listening to you staring into the webcam <laughs> and listening to all of your wisdom and advice and experience in working with sexual abuse has been beneficial for us so no doubt it will be beneficial for the listeners. So thank you very much for your time and your expertise we've, we've really really enjoyed it and also people should know that we started at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning so Credit to Lydia for getting up that early and taking the time on, on your Sunday. So we really appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for listening. And we've been free social workers talking about social matters. You can find us on Twitter at Matters Podcast and also on Instagram at Matters Podcast. And you can follow Lydia on Twitter at Lydia underscore Godfrey. We'll put all of the links for the charity and Tag Lydia on Twitter when we release the episode.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation. I, I've so I love your podcasts. Um, and it, it feels like I'm sitting around the table in the room with you. So, thank you yeah, so yeah. much. I re- yeah exactly. I I really appreciate the invitation. Um, and and the chance to talk about some important ideas with you. So thank you. I've also got my pajamas on
0: underneath. <laughs> <laughs> just just so everyone knows lydia is not in the room she's actually on, on Skype. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and we really appreciate it have a lovely sunday bye bye, bye. bye.
1: thank you Good thank break. you lydia bye